I'm Michael Kist of Bleeding Green Nation, and I invite you, gentle listener, to join us for the best analysis of the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles in the business. BGN Radio provides you with the most informative preview shows, and the Kist and Solak show dives deep into all the schemes and X and O details you could ever want. Plus discussions with the industry's brightest minds, including former NFL players and press conferences from the Eagles coaching staff to keep you up to date and informed every step of the way. Subscribe to Bleeding Green Nation today. Fly, Eagles, fly. Hey everybody, how you doing? Well, that's good. Welcome to Broad Street Hockey Radio. That's right, BSH Radio. My name is Bill Max. I am your director of fun and games for the evening. We have a great show for you tonight. Uh, there is a lot of uh, fluidity in the Flyers lineup right now. They are 5-3-0, and and I gotta say, they might look even better. Uh, I bet you Charlie has some numbers that disagree with my eye test, but we'll get into that. So let me just get started right away. Uh, we are without Steph Driver tonight. We miss her dearly, but we will press on. First, I will introduce to you, from TheAthletic.com, Charlie O'Connor. So this weekend, I was at RITHACK, which is the Rochester Institute of Technology Hockey Analytics Conference, um, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about it because it was a blast, so props to uh, to Ryan Stimson, who unfortunately is a Devils fan, but he did a lot of the, the setup for it. Um, but number one, I'd like to note that our own Steph Alicious D. Steph Driver was on a panel at the conference, and she was awesome. So that's all online, her video on uh, on media and, the, and analytics. Um, it was pretty awesome great to see her uh you know kill it up there um but number two and this was also really cool to see uh there were multiple flyers fans who came to the event in addition to myself steph and then namita who also works uh, with me at the athletic i think there were like a good like five or six flyers fans that showed up and this is rochester this isn't necessarily our backyard and it was really cool to see like Flyers fans getting into this stuff and coming out of their way to go to a conference that's just talking about nerd stats. Um, and I think like one thing for me is I really like hope that the stuff I write about and then the stuff that we all talk about on the show like inspires people to look deeper into these stats and maybe start writing their own articles and doing their own research. So if you uh, if you feel uncomfortable in getting into the community, know that there's other Flyers fans that even I didn't know were in the community that I met at this conference. Like we're we're getting bigger, and I think uh, I think it's you know Flyers fans can definitely take this community over if we uh, we keep growing the way we've been. And the fly by herself, Kelly Hinkle. Well, actually, Charlie, did you know that Corsi is not real? I've I've heard talk <laughs> of that that it's a fake stat. Uh, yeah, but seriously though, I did, I ended up watching, um, Steph's panel online and she did absolutely crush it. She looked amazing. Um, she's just so super comfortable in front of people and she's so knowledgeable about everything that we do here. It was just, it's nice to see her get some attention for all of the hard work that she does for us. Um, so that was fun to watch, but, um, I kind of want to kick off some Flyers conversation by bringing up Andrew McDonald, um, because he unfortunately got himself a bit of an injury over the weekend and it led me to have to remind people on the internet that you can simultaneously be bummed that a player in your team got hurt and also glad that he's no longer in your lineup and I think people forget that and they get very angry when you express some kind of happiness about the fact that Andrew McDonald's going to be out of the lineup um, because they conflate that with you being glad that he got hurt. And those things can be mutually exclusive. So I think it's important to note. Yeah, uh, that's one thing. I want to talk about Andrew McDonald too, but I want to comment on that. Like, Andrew McDonald didn't get shot in the chest. Like, he's going to live, yeah, he's and okay. he's going to make $5 million a year while he's living. He's going to be fine. Uh, I, I, I don't want to see anyone celebrate an injury, but the fact that he's not going to be playing with Ivan Provorov is something I want to kind of celebrate, regardless of how it happened. I really admire the guy, how he made the play, and how he got injured making a play, staying on the ice, blocking the shot, then uh, staying on to kill the rest of the penalty. I really admire that part of his game. Um, but I don't think, like, like, we spend a lot of time trashing Andrew McDonald, and it's not for fun. 
You know, like, he just, he kind of hurts the team sometimes, and I want to see other guys play. I would rather it was Sam Moran, but, yeah. and that's what I want to get into uh, with my opening is, uh, McDonald is out four to six weeks uh, with this with this lower body injury he sustained in the Edmonton game. And do you think maybe we're sometimes unfair to Andrew McDonald? Um, like, do you think we over-criticize him? Because I'm looking at some quotes here that I'll get into in a little bit from, from some of his teammates and his coach. Uh, and maybe there is that part of... Uh, of, of intangibles to his game that we just don't recognize, you know, in an evaluation. Maybe they do. Maybe his presence in the locker room and pl- as a veteran next to Provorov is important. Maybe we over, maybe we under, uh, like, value that. So I'm going to jump in here and say that I think that's mostly not the case. There, I'm sure, like, I don't doubt that, that Andrew McDonald is a good dude. I don't doubt that there's, you know, a veteran presence there that probably has some value in the locker room, probably has some value in terms of him being able to, uh, you know, maybe help along a rookie uh, in terms of what, you know, what works and what doesn't um, on the ice, even though he may not necessarily actually be great on the ice. Um, but at the same time, like, we're looking at results. I think that's that's the key here. Like, intangibles are intangible but all we really can do because we have no access to the intangibles is to look at tangible results and the tangible results say that you know for years mcdonald has not been a positive result driving defenseman in the national hockey league so like i i think i did note in my article this morning that he by the numbers he's actually been pretty good this year and i think that's completely 100 percent fair to note but it's also fair to note that the four seasons prior he was really bad so is there, you know, is there stuff that the stats are missing? Maybe. You always have to acknowledge the possibility that numbers, you know, that obviously people that have been in the game for years and years and years may know something that we don't rather than they're missing something we are. But by the same token, like when every single public metric implies that McDonald isn't very good, like I generally will think that the metrics are probably right rather than Andrew McDonald just being like this random exception to the rule that you know Corsi generally is good at predicting who's good and who's bad yeah here's the thing like these quotes Bill that you brought to our attention before the show um a a good two-thirds of them I think mentioned the fact that he's you know good for blocking shots and sacrificing his body to make a play and I think that you know if you're playing with him on the ice, you see him block a shot on a power play. That's obviously something you're going to value. But on the whole, on a global scale, we know that if you're always blocking shots, that's actually bad. Um, and also, like, what else is Jake Voracek going to say? Like, he's not going to, you know, he's going to, he, I mean, I had to take some crap about this on, on Twitter over the weekend because I spent a good fair bit of that Edmonton game criticizing Andrew McDonald and then he went ahead and made that gutsy play of course um on the power play that led to him getting injured but one shift doesn't change the fact that he's not been a good defenseman for almost his entire time in Philadelphia it's just a fact yeah and I'm uh, I'm I'm willing to acknowledge that and I look at I look at these quotes the first one from Jake Voracek on that play uh, those are the sacrifices you've got to make. Mac is one of the best in blocking shots, so kudos to him. Uh, I talked in my uh, Patreon update today when I just talked about the McDonald injury and who was going to play with Provorov and uh, Moran's situation and the Wheel and Lear injuries and Lotera and all that stuff, which you can hear exclusively uh, if you uh, pay us money. Yeah, check out our uh, the Broad Street Hockey Radio Patreon. We have all sorts of good content up there, including immediate reactions to uh, injury and lineup news, stuff like that that but uh kelly you brought up a point that blocking shots constantly isn't great and that's something i brought up in that uh you know if you're constantly blocking shots you lead the league and block shots that means they're attempting a lot of shots when you're on the ice and uh it's 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 that's not ideal uh sure on a on a penalty kill when you really need it that that's huge but uh, overall, it's not something you really want to see. The quote from Giroux, he makes a lot of those plays during a hockey game. That one obviously is a highlight type of play, not just blocking the shot, but then to make a play after that as well, to stay out there and make a play at a critical time of a hockey game. Those are the kinds of things that give your bench a little bit of momentum 
and, and a bit of a lift. And that that's what I'm more getting at with um, when we talk about the intangibles. Is it maybe something uh, almost like a fight? Like, no, maybe it, it's not like a 100% thing. Uh, like, oh, yeah, he did this, so this happened. But a, a bench can react to a play like that, and that's maybe how we're unfair to Andrew McDonald. I mean, I think so, but he also – that's – kind of an aberration for Andrew McDonald for him to block a shot and then make a good play on the puck and clear it and on the power like that's not a normal Andrew McDonald play like fair normally he's screwing that up and the fact that he didn't this time and ended up getting hurt on the play people are using this as some kind of like proof that he's actually good and he's actually a great leader and maybe we should all shut the fuck up about Andrew McDonald but in reality things went right for him on this play they usually don't go right for him, and I don't think we're unfair by pointing that out from time to time. Yeah, I'd, I'd also like to make the point, too, that you know these quotes are all great, and that's awesome, but like, what are the players going to say? It's not as if you <laughs> right. know they're asking Claude Giroux, so who do you think was really good in this game, and he's singling out Andrew McDonald? Like, when you're in these scrums, you ask a player about another player, knowing that you're going to get only positive things said about that player. Like, that's the, sort of the point. You're, you're basically tossing up a pitch and letting the player hit it out of the park. It's the same thing with coaches. It's the same thing with general managers. So, like, the fact that these comments are positive towards Andrew McDonald, it shouldn't shock anyone. Like, he's, a, he's clearly a well-liked guy. They, they gave him the, uh, the, alternate captain, uh, the alternate captaincy along with Philpola, so they like him. They're not going to shit on him when you ask about him, but I honestly believe if you hooked some of these players up to lie detector tests, they wouldn't actually believe that Andrew McDonald is a top-pair defenseman in the NHL or should be a top-pair defenseman in the NHL. No, and I'm sure that they are probably a fair— bit of games when they get super frustrated with something dumb that he's done on the ice too but they're never going to say that out loud because how could they possibly it's ridiculous and that's one thing I, I i'm reading these quotes and trying to create a situation in which maybe i can say we're wrong about something and maybe we are unfair to the guy but i always say i don't care what gms coaches and players say because it's mostly lying and cliche most of the time anyway and when you ask a guy a question you're either setting him up to give you the answer you already wrote down and just kind of wanted him to say so you could put quotes around it or you're setting him up to freak out like alan iverson in the practice thing it's it's one of those two <laughs> that's all it's important to remember, but we've never been wrong. So Yes. No, I have, in fact, remember. never been wrong. Never was. Uh, but I wonder if Provorov is one of those guys we could hook up to a lie detector test. Because this quote was from a little bit ago, but I saw it reprinted today just with all the stuff about uh, McDonald being hurt and maybe his treatment being unfair from fans. Uh, Provorov said, Mac is a good partner because it is easy to play with him. We understand where we are together on the ice. We just have a good chemistry defensively and offensively. Good communication. He does a lot of little things that maybe people don't notice but make it easier for me. He's definitely helped me a lot. I like playing together. That's nice. What a sweet boy. So so, <laughs> so I actually believe that Provorov does like playing with McDonald. I've I've heard I've heard from people that like this that isn't an act. That Provorov does like playing with Andrew McDonald, but you have to account for the fact that this is a guy who like who was his partner before Andrew McDonald? It was Mark Streit, who couldn't really skate anymore, and then before that, he wasn't in the NHL. So it's not like Ivan Provorov has ever played with a really good NHL defenseman before. So for him, Andrew McDonald is awesome because he's clearly better than anybody he played alongside in Brandon. But, you know, let's give him three weeks with Shane Gossespierre or, or, or Radko Gudis, and maybe he changes his mind on what a good NHL defenseman partner really is. Also, I, I truly do not doubt for a second that Andrew McDonald is an excellent human being, that he works really hard to help out the young guys on this team, that he's probably great for you know advice for a guy like Provorov who's just coming into the league, having played here for a while. And I'm sure that that all plays a part in what these guys think about him and what they say about playing with him. I'm sure that all of those things are true, but that doesn't mean that objectively he's a good NHL defenseman. He's just not. Yeah, and when I see things like we have good chemistry, we have good communication, they've spent most of the last uh, full season, basically, uh, playing together. So those things are going to develop. If he had had that time with someone else, I'm sure there would be some chemistry there. Uh, and when I, whenever I read... Um, 
he does a lot of little things that maybe people don't notice but make it easier. I always just think like, oh, the fans are the fans, and we know what's going on out there. Don't worry about it. Like, I always just, maybe not a cop-out, because it's kind of some of the things we used to defend Sean Couturier until now, when, you know, he's like a 90-point player. Uh, but it's kind of some of the little stuff we used to defend Sean Couturier. Uh, but it seems different contextually here for me for some reason. Yeah, well, the, oh, for some reason. Yeah, but, like, the, the thing with these the little things comment is that like, there are some players, you know to Couturier, he's a classic example, there are some players who actually are doing little things, but here's the thing. they Those little things are driving positive outcomes that we can measure. Like, Michael Roffel, to me, is a classic example of a guy who does all the little things right, and it's true. Not all fans recognize what he's doing right on the ice, and they underrate him, and they yell at him because he doesn't score enough, and they think he's garbage, and he's not. He's actually very good. but the, Well, maybe not very good, but he's good. The thing is, is that the reason why we know all those little things that he's done, that he does on the ice, actually are real is because they show up in his results. And the problem with McDonald is that he may do a lot of little things that we don't notice. Very possible that he does. But clearly, all those little things we don't notice don't actually add up to positive results. And that's the key to the whole thing. In the end, you can do all the little things in the world, but if they're not equaling positive on-ice results, then really what's the usefulness of them? All right, uh, there's one last quote here, and it's from Hackstall, and I want to get into Hackstall in a second. Uh, it's uh, The coach says, Mac is just a solid pro. He brings a certain element of efficiency and poise to our hockey team. He's not flashy, but he skates well, defends well, moves the puck. He is, he is an aware player with good attention to detail. Bottom line is that he plays his role well and has done a good job for us. Uh, and that, like, you know, we always say... While Andrew McDonald may be even better than Brandon Manning, we'd rather Brandon Manning in the lineup because he's used as a six when he plays, and Ivan or and Andrew McDonald is used with Ivan Provorov, which brings down a very good player, a potentially very good player. But uh, Charlie, you just said let's see how you know Provorov really feels about his partner when he gets a certain amount of time with a guy who can maybe help him out a little better, and we found out today at practice. Robert Haig has been elevated to the uh, to the position next to Provorov. He's going to play the right side. How do we think that pairing is going to look? So, I mean, I was rooting for Gudis to get moved up. I don't hate Haig being the guy. I just, to me, like, the reason why I wanted Gudis on that pairing is because I'm certain that a Gudis-Provorov pairing would be successful, whereas I'm not convinced that Hagen Provorov will work I think it could and I understand their thought process like they've been super super high on Hague ever since the start of the year I think most fans have really liked what they've seen he's been steady he's you know he makes plays when he has to the what does concern me with him a little bit is that the numbers don't necessarily back up the eye test at this point with Hague like his his uh, his play driving numbers haven't been anything special, and by Corey's uh, by Corey Schneider's manually tracked data, he's not grading out particularly well in like defending the blue line or creating zone exits. Now, granted, it's early, and like I'm not going to bury Robert Haig by any means. He might be a great fit, but with Gudis, like he has a long track record of driving play, so I was more hoping for that pairing. Obviously, that's not what happened. They move Haig up. Gudis is going to be with Ghost. It's exciting because we're finally going to get to see somebody else with Provorov. I just, you know, I'm not certain. With Gudis, I was certain it would be an upgrade. With Haig, I'm hoping it's an upgrade, but I just don't know because I don't, I still really don't know what Robert Haig is at this point. See, I really like the Haig ghost pairing, so I'm um, a little bummed that they decided to break that up so quickly. Um, I mean, especially considering that you're telling me, and I believe you implicitly because you're Charlie, um, that Gudis, Gudis would have been a better option to move up Provorov. Um, I just, I don't know. I, I feel like Haig, even if his underlying numbers are great, there seems to be something that he brings to the table that is inspiring Ghost to play a lot better than he did last season. And so um, I'm a little hesitant about them breaking up that pairing. It's going to be interesting to see how Ghost responds to a new partner. That's the other, is um, you have Ghost and Gudis, and I'm not quite sold on that pairing. To me, it seems like a, uh, an attempt at like that Ghost-Moran dream team that I've wanted for so long, but I don't know, I just don't love the fit uh, as much as I did Ghost and Haig. But uh, when I read the quotes that Dave Hackstall had on, on, uh, on Andrew McDonald, 
I think it makes perfect sense that they put Robert with uh would they put Robert Haig with Provorov to have that steady solid guy who does the little things because that seems to be what they love about Haig. Yeah, this is this to me is them trying their best to replicate what they clearly like about the Provorov McDonald pairing, and Haig is the guy who, from a skill set standpoint, you know, is the most. I wouldn't even say like the most like Andrew McDonald, but he's definitely the most like what they think Andrew McDonald is. You know, steady, reliable. You've called, didn't you call him before the the most hackstall? Yeah, of the rookie I, defensive? I, I would definitely call him the most hackstall of the rookie <laughs> defensive. But like, you look at everybody else. I mean, I per, proposed Gudis and Ghost as possible options to to move up with with Provorov, but like, you know, Ghost is the the opposite of like steady and un you know uninteresting. He's that's basically the opposite of his game. And then Gudis is has such a such a strange skill set in that like he's you know he's viewed as a stay-at-home defenseman but he takes more shots than like anyone in the nhl from the blue line and he's not especially great at zone exits but he drives a ton of offense like he's such he's this weird weird skill set so you know maybe they're just afraid that that might not mesh with Provorov. but then again as, as you said that begs the question of how it's going to mesh with with ghost and it was interesting i i one thing that I've always wondered may have been why they kept Ghost and Gudis apart is because both those guys love to shoot the puck, and you know, obviously there's only one puck. Like, there's been a lot of work in basketball shown, uh, a lot of analytics work in basketball about like you know sharing the ball and about usage rate and things like that. And I kind of wondered if it was a similar concern with putting with putting Gudis and Ghost in the same pair. Like, only one guy can shoot the puck, and you obviously want the forwards to be taking more shots than the defensemen. So, do you really want to put two guys who love to bomb it from the point together? Well, I guess Hacks all that, and he basically was like, "Nah, I don't, I don't think it's gonna be a big deal. They'll, they'll figure it out." So I guess we'll see. Like they might figure it out. They're, you know, Gudis is a is a play driver, and Ghost has has driven play for stretches, for extended stretches in the past. So it could be a really good pairing. It could also, you know, they could run into some issues where both these guys want to shoot the puck. And I don't know. It's gonna be. I, I'm intrigued to see that pairing. I'm almost more intrigued to see that pairing than I am the the Provorov Haig pairing, to be honest. I was really hoping to see uh, Travis Sandheim get a shot after uh, he looked. It looked like the team had uh, some some renewed confidence in him. I guess I don't really understand why they were bringing him in and out of the lineup, but he seems to be finding his game a bit. And he spent a lot of time on the right side in the AHL last season. Uh, a lot of us thought for the for the implicit reason of we're going to put him on the right side next to Provorov at some point. Uh, I thought this was a good opportunity to do that, but I guess Robert Haig is the guy they really like to be that steady one. I want Provorov to be the steady one and have, you know, the the ghost or the Sandheim type next to him, but uh, I guess we're going to have to wait on that at least for the time being. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had something else, and I just forgot what I was going to get to That's after okay, that, and was hoping someone else would just cover. Oh, okay, yeah, I want to get into uh, I want to get into the Sam Moran stuff now. Uh, it it doesn't look like they're going to be calling Moran up at least before they go on the road uh, tomorrow. They're home against the Ducks. They're just going to roll with six. Hextall said he would reassess after that game if they get banged up or something on the blue line, but it appears they're uh, they're pretty confident they can go. Just with these six and uh, Sandheim and Manning as that third pair. That bums me out, man. I know. Yeah, I really was hoping that this would be the shot for Moran to at least get himself a game or two and show what he what he's got, but I guess not. Yeah, I think the way they looked at it was if they weren't willing to basically give Moran the spot for four to six weeks, they uh, they weren't going to call him up. And a lot of people have asked me on on social media why they're so low on Sam Moran. You know, why are they not calling up Sam Moran? How can they be so low on this guy? He looks so good in preseason. And I, I always give variations of the same response, which is the vibe I get from Hextall and Hextall isn't that they're super low on Sam Moran. It's that they're much higher on Brandon Manning than the fans are. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to accept because they believe Brandon Manning is, you know, maybe a couple steps ahead of garbage. So the idea that, like, he's blocking Sam Moran must mean that they don't like Sam Moran. And no, it's that they actually don't think Brandon Manning is garbage. So to them, it's not this big insult that Manning is playing over Moran. It's that Manning's a solid defenseman, and Sam Moran's probably a solid defenseman. We know Manning's a solid defenseman, so Sam Moran has to be better than solid to jump him, and they don't believe he's done that yet. And you know, that may not be a 
know, a particularly, you know, satisfying, you know, satisfying answer to fans, but I think it's as close to the truth as we're going to get. Yeah, but he's been he's been really crushing up in Allentown, no? Like he's been playing really well up there. It's not like he, you know, got sent down and was just kind of performing at a mediocre AHL level. He's like we expected. I mean, he's playing better than an AHL defenseman because he's better than an AHL defenseman and it would have been nice um given that this was probably one of the few ways he was going to get a shot in the lineup it would have been nice for them to and I guess you know he still could but I was kind of hoping they would at least call him up so that the the option was there yeah but like you said he's they want to keep him playing and I guess if they really just do think Brandon Manning is good enough to play the coach has chosen to play Brandon Manning over you know a first round pick and Travis Sanheim at different points this year and that's the next thing I want to get to is uh we spend a lot of time ripping Dave Haxtell, so I always want to find a thing or two I can credit him for. And maybe it's, you know, the low bar theory, like credit him <laughs> for doing the thing he should do. But I want to credit Haxtell for playing Sanheim against Edmonton because playing Manning against McDavid seems like such a Haxtell thing. It, it really is a super Dave Haxtell thing in the fact that, I, I mean, I guess we could say, yes, he did in fact do the thing that he was supposed to do over the weekend. And iced the better defenseman against Connor mcdavid and the oilers so well done dave i'm super proud of you (laughs) yeah like i i was i was expecting him to start manning so it was a pleasant surprise when he didn't uh but in the end like you just taking a step back because i I think a lot of times like i try to present what i think the coach's justification is but i also want to present what my opinion is and like my opinion is that travis sandheim is substantially better than brandon manning in pretty much every aspect of hockey and the concept that like you needed to put a Brandon Manning in because he pissed off Connor McDavid that one time and then maybe a second time when he lied to him and said he was actually on purpose like it just seems like the benefit of that was totally outweighed by the fact that Travis Sanheim is a dramatically better player and it was very very satisfying for me to see that like Haxtell clearly agreed I want to ask you something now about uh, about Ron Hextall, Charlie. I saw this quote in your, uh, I believe it was your Nashville observations uh, on the Athletic. Uh, you asked you asked Ron about uh, what kind of playing time you thought or he thought was necessary for Sanheim. You know, he's in and out of the lineup. What it would do to his development to sit. And the quote from your story was, it's not going to continue. He's not going to sit on the bench and continue here for long term, or things are going to change. Charlie, how did you interpret things? What things do you think would uh, were going to have to change? If, if Sandheim was going, do you mean, does that mean, you know, Sandheim's just going to go to the AHL because there's no sense in sitting him, or things like the head coach is this the first sign of public disconnect between the gm and coach what what did you think when you got that quote from the gm so i will say i don't think it was the first sign of public disconnect between the gm and the coach because before hextall gave that quote about 30 minutes before that we interviewed hextall and hextall said something very similar which was basically that I forget exactly what his words were but it was essentially that like sandheim's going to be playing the vast majority of the times and it seemed like they were on the same page with the idea that, like, Sanheim is going to play most of the time. My guess, and this is just kind of like an educated guess on what I was reading between the lines, is that the main reason why the split was so even early was just sort of like something they they did not anticipate. Like, it was an unanticipated thing that it was 50-50 because they, like, maybe they plan to give Manning the, the first game for whatever dumb reason. Then they had Sandheim play a bunch. Then they figure, well, we'll, get, we'll toss Manning in to make sure he doesn't stay, you know, he, he's, you know, he stays fresh in case we need him. Then they won 8-2, and they kept, him, they kept Manning in for the second game. And then, holy shit, it's six games, and they've split 50-50. And my guess is that before that day of practice, like, Hexall and Hexall had a conversation, and they both agree that, like, okay, we're six game in, games in, it's a small sample size, but, like, this can't continue. Sandheim's got to play more. Because I do believe that, I think the, the underlying thing of that, was, which was basically that if he's going to stay on the bench, he's probably going to get sent down. Like, that was true. But it was also the fact that, like, there's no way he's going to stay on the bench. Like we're gonna okay. we're gonna okay. play this guy, and I think you you've seen that over the last couple games. And now the question isn't even a question anymore because McDonald's out, so now Sandheim's locked into the lineup for the foreseeable future. But even before then, I, I honestly believe this was a case of like 
ideally they wanted the split to be like 4-2. Instead, it ended up being 3-3. And because we had dealt with so few games, like 50% seems a lot worse than 66. You know what I mean? I'm actually glad that you say that. I mean, I know we don't have to worry about it now because of the injury, but when I first read that quote with no tone, um, I was a little bit like, well, is he saying that he's going to send him to the AHL because he's not going to sit in the box here? Like, it was almost like, oh, what? Mm. I think it, without without any tone to be interpreted, it kind of read a little bit like, well, he's not going to sit here. So, you know, Allentown. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad that's not the case. Yeah, that's totally fair. And it, that's one of the hard parts about, like, I guess I'm learning now that I'm a full-time journalist. Like, that's one of the hard parts of getting quotes is you know, <laughs> trying to trying to provide that context for people. But, like, I do think there there was sort of you know, maybe the, the other scenario, not that this is actually happening, but, like, the other scenario that Hextall wanted to leave himself open for was, like, let's assume – like, remember how Brandon Manning got off to that, like, actually good start last year? And yes. had people thinking like, hey, this guy might be like not just a seven defenseman. Maybe he's a good third pair defenseman or maybe he's like even a low end second pair defenseman. And I think kind of what Hexall was getting at was like if Brandon Manning repeated that and straight up looked good every single night to the point where they couldn't bench him that they would probably strongly consider sending Travis Sanheim down because if Brandon Manning truly earned an every night in their lineup role, they weren't going to just have Sanheim sitting around waiting for Manning to screw up. But as we've all seen, Brandon Manning hasn't done that because that streak at the start of last year was just that. It was just a hot streak with him playing out of his mind and he quickly came back to earth. So I think Hexel was sort of leaving himself open to the possibility like, well, if Manning absolutely kills it, yeah, maybe we consider sending Sandheim down. But I, in no way, shape, or form do I think that was, number one, it's not likely that Manning's ever going to play that well again over a month, two month long <laughs> period. But also it's just, you know, it was unlikely that they were ever going to be at the point where it would become an option to send Sandheim down because he wasn't getting enough playing time. Thank God. Yeah, that would have been a Jesus. I mean, it would have been great for this show, but God, <laughs> uh, but, we have enough uh, material to work with. Yeah, we, we we certainly do. I don't need to make watching the games any harder than it is. Actually, they have been really fun to watch. I have enjoyed pretty much all their games so far this season. I don't want to get in the negativity mode because they are five three and zero, oh, and I think they've had a chance to win every game. Um, Sanheim almost, you know, almost on demand starts getting power play time. Uh, was this just because Wheel was out and uh, Sanheim's the most, you know, dynamic offensive option regardless of what position he plays? They started going with 2D on that uh, that second power play unit or what What was behind that Sanheim finally getting some power play time? It definitely seemed like, I mean, I don't think it would have happened if not for Wheel getting hurt. So sometimes these things are a little bit fortuitous because we got to see that Sanheim is actually pretty competent on the power play. And that's maybe an option that they can throw out there when they want to mix it up a little bit going forward. But I think this, this also goes back to kind of the underlying point to what Hexall and Hexall said, because you know, there was some question of what they meant by it. Then the next game, Sanheim starts, and not only does he play more minutes of 5-on-5, five five, he plays in the power play, and he even got penalty kill time. And I think this was just sort of their way of being like, yeah, he's going to get more time, and we're going to show you he's going to get more time by actually giving it to him. So I, I do believe that there was sort of a you know, an implicit nod, maybe not to the fans, because, like, do they really give a shit about what the fans think? Probably not. But I think they do give a shit about what (laughs) Travis Sanheim thinks. And this was a vote of confidence in him to tell him, like, look, you sat three games, but don't start thinking we don't have confidence in you. We trust you, and we're going to prove that by by playing you in all three situations. Hmm. Yeah, I was really happy to see him get that penalty kill time, uh, just as, you know, something something for him to do basically i'm just i just want to see him get out on the ice and i want to see like the full extent of his abilities uh power play i've had people tweeting me like when sanheim gonna get some power play time it seems like a waste of his talents not to have him on one of those units and i'm like yes maybe but they also have ghost and provorov i think uh i think i like the idea of using the 2d at least as long as as a wheel is out but it looks like he's back in the lineup as well uh, yeah, it sounds like it. The Hextall, and obviously the Flyers are like super duper tight-lipped about these sort of things, but Hextall said 
after practice, basically, that as far as I know, Wheel and Lear are good to go. So we'll see. The weird thing about the Wheel injury is that, like, Wheel missed two games, but he never missed a practice. So I have no idea, like, it was an upper body injury, so I guess that wasn't preventing him from skating. But, like, it wasn't even as if he was showing up for the first 10 minutes of practice, skating around, and then leaving. Like, he was completing the practices in full, which involved shooting and passing and physical play. And then they would announce... Yeah, he's hurt. Like, he's out for this game, and he's out for this game. So, I mean, I don't doubt that he's actually injured. I still don't think the Flyers are lying, but it was sort of a weird thing where you got this idea like, well, it can't be serious because he's not practicing, and then, or because he's practicing, and then he missed two games. It, do, it, would, it doesn't shock me at all, though, that he seems like he'll be back in for Tuesday because, again, it, it never seemed serious. Like, even Lear, Lear at least missed a practice. He had a maintenance day on, on Friday, which maybe should have given us the heads up that, like, maybe he won't play Saturday. But, like, Wheel pretty much played all throughout for all on Voorhees and then just happened to miss two games. So, going back to Sandheim, though, real quick, like, I'm happy he's he's playing on the power play without a doubt. But, like, when it, when it all comes down to it, like, who else was going to play there with Wheel out? Like, you don't want Weiss there. They obviously don't want Raffle there. Like, the only other guy who I could think of as a possible option would be Lawton. But I think they're so, like... The way they the way they look yeah. at it with Lawton is like we finally convinced this guy it's okay to be a fourth liner. We're not going to then throw him back on the power play and like get him back into the mentality of I need to score. So that that's more of in my mind. Even though he actually might be a decent power play forward at this stage, like he's not at the stage where they feel comfortable giving him that role again. So not to step on your lineup or on your uh, overview, my brain isn't working, Bill, but. Charlie brought up Dale Weiss, and it looks like we're not gonna get some Dale Weiss tomorrow. That's actually where I, that's actually where I wanted to go next, Kelly. Well God done. Damn, uh, I nailed it. With with all these lineup <laughs> changes, I actually just never really put the uh, outline in any sort of order. But with all with all these lineup changes uh, and a couple of injuries, Yuri Laterra stepped in for Jordan Wheel. Looked pretty bad in the first game, but seemed to get his legs under him uh, in his second game against Edmonton. And now it looks like he's joining the uh, the Patrick and Konechny line. And Dale Weiss is coming out, which is exactly what I wanted a week ago. So, hey, good for me. But uh, what have we seen out of Yuri Laterra? How do we think he's going to mesh with that line? How do you think it changes the, the look of the team? So I, I, I'll i just kind of throw in my two cents, but I think the better person to answer this is Kelly because Kelly not what? only – Well, Kelly not only live-tweeted the game for Brush Street Hockey, she watched it on an actual television where I watched it I on – I watched it on a little phone in a conference hall. So my <laughs> my observations of Yuri Laterra are going to be limited from Saturday's game. He didn't look good on Thursday, but from what no. I gathered, he looked much better on Saturday, obviously got a secondary assist on the game-winning goal, and his line on the whole just looked significantly more effective. So I'm curious to hear, Kelly, what your, your thoughts were of his game. I didn't hate it. Um, he's still not my favorite person to have in that spot. Um, I still actually am super high on my own completely mix up the middle six horse that no one else is on, which is fine. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, over Dale Weiss, I'll, I'll take him all day. I mean, he definitely was better Saturday than he had been um, on Thursday, I think it was. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, it, it, a marginally, a marginal improvement, I would say. I, he wasn't lighting the world on fire despite the points, I don't think. That's and really all I want to see out of Laterra, because I just I, I I'm just so sick of Dale Weiss, honestly. He looked like he was forming a little bit of chemistry with Nolan Patrick. They made some plays together, but on a shift to shift basis, they that line was the one that was seriously underperforming yeah. for uh for a lot of these games. So it makes sense, you know, you have a you have a healthy lineup again. Let's let's get Laterra in there, see what he can do. And then if that doesn't work, get Reed in there, see what he can do. And if that doesn't work, throw Weiss back in there then and maybe that'll light a fire under his ass for a couple games before we have to eventually take him out because he can't score again. But uh yeah, yeah I, just, I, I want to see I want to just see Letera, I just want to see Laterra get the puck to connect me and get the puck to Patrick and try to set them up in the offensive zone. He's a uh, Charlie. I think you've pointed out time and time again, he does not shoot. He is a pass first player. That's why maybe he looked uh, really poor in his first game with, uh, 
with Simmons and Philpola, because Philpola never shoots either. But um, I think on a line with two other skilled guys who can maybe get a little bit more going down low, Laterra can use his puck possession skills to uh, to just kind of distribute and set up those two. Yeah, I think it's fascinating with this line. What's going to be the most fascinating for me is just that, like, Weiss and Laterra kind of are like polar opposites as players. Like, they were almost, the line was almost trying to use Weiss the same way that the first line uses Couturier, in that, like, you know, basically on the first line, Giroux and Voracek do, like, the puck moving and puck handling, and then Couturier gets to the dirty areas and scores. And they were sort of trying to do that with Weiss, where it's like, okay, well, Patrick and Konechny carry the puck, and Weiss gets to dirty areas and takes shots and hopefully puts pucks in the net. Laterra is not like that. Like, Laterra is a, a puck possession guy, and a lot of people use puck possession and you know in to replace things like Corsi. Like, no, puck possession is literally like holding on to the puck. And Yuri Laterra, that is his game. His game is holding on to the puck and then setting up other people to shoot. Weiss's game is the opposite. He he's the guy who wants to take the shots. So if you're gonna swap in Laterra for for Weiss, like, does that mean that now Nolan Patrick will feel like he can take more shots? Which I don't think would be a bad thing at all. It's just it'll be interesting interesting to see what it does to the, the entire dynamic of the line now that like Weiss well, I wouldn't go as far as to call him dead weight, like he was the support guy and also like the quote unquote finisher. Without Weiss, does that mean Patrick becomes the finisher? And if he is, does that help Patrick? All right, let me ask you a question. It's like a selfish Kelly wants to know if she's a crazy person question. Shoot. So like I have this in my mind, I would almost rather they form a second line whose whole function is to get Nolan Patrick going. So in my mind, that's Simmons and Konechny on his wings. And then, which leaves us with kind of a relative dog as a third line. And then obviously the first and fourth lines have been great when, when healthy. Am I like crazy? Like, I would rather have a super functional second line a bit of a dog at three, one and four doing super well. Um, because I just, I feel like Nolan Patrick is struggling because Nolan Patrick's line is not optimal for Nolan Patrick. And I feel like it's important that we get him going. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of, because I've heard a couple of people say that, that like, and don't get me wrong, like a Konechny, Patrick Simmons line seems super fun. What I do think that, what I do think a lot of that is driven by, and you basically flat out said it is that like fans are most invested in getting Nolan Patrick going fans are most invested in getting Travis Konechny going fans are invested in getting Wayne Simmons going because fans like those players whereas the players like Dale Weiss and Valtteri Filippola and Yuri Laterra like like fans don't really care about them that much like some people like Filippola and like some people still I guess you know have a soft spot for Weiss but very few but, but I'm sure there's some I'm sure there's some out there but like I think the idea of that line is basically saying, like, well, let's get the guys going that we actually give a shit about, and then the other guys is like, who cares, because I don't like them anyway, which is totally fair for a fan, and I'm not certainly not, like, shitting on you for it, but I, I think that the, the goal on Haxtell's side is more like, well, let's find a way to get all four of them going, which well, may I, be why. Well, that's the thing. Like, I my thought process isn't the one that you're describing. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not that I just like those three guys better than I like the other three guys. If, if the middle six was one of those middle six lines was working really well and the Patrick line wasn't okay, but I don't think either one of the middle six lines is doing well enough that they don't warrant a mix up. Like there's nothing special there. And so I just don't think it would hurt to see what happens if we tried to get one of the lines going in a major way at the expense of the other one, um, obviously having four would be great, but right now we have like two and a half and I'd rather have three. Yeah. I, I think that's fair. I, I, if, if we were going to go with the Patrick Konechny Simmons line, like it would, I guess this would involve breaking up the honeybees, which I don't think anybody really wants to do, but I think like, no. inevitably I think it's going to happen at some point. Like I would not hate a, Raffle Philpola a wheel third line like like I think that could work and you could do that in addition to having a Konechny Patrick Simmons line so like that could work I just you know that would involve moving Raffle off line four which maybe weakens them you don't know what yeah. kind of impact that's going to have but in like I think in the end unless like 
Lindblom starts blowing it up in the AHL and gets called off. Like, to me, the solution to fixing the middle six is moving Raffle into the middle six. Like, to me, that that's inevitably going to be what has to happen if you want to improve that middle six because Raffle is a middle six forward playing the fourth line. And, yes, he's making the fourth line better, but, like, he could make the third line better too. So, in the end, I think that's sort of what it's going to come down to. Yeah. I, I, I would – I. I'm against breaking up the Lawton line just on principle of them playing well. Yeah. But this whole honeybees thing is getting out of control. <laughs> and if it ends that if it ends that nickname, I'm all for it. It's <laughs> see this is where we but need for, Steph this is where we need Steph on the podcast because she would vehemently defend that nickname because it's great. <laughs> Seriously, she would have destroyed you with that comment. It is it, it, I I can't call three grown men the honeybees. <laughs> you could do that, anything you set your mind to, William. I it just including it's, this. It's painful. It's painful when it comes out of my mouth. Uh, but but more than that, uh, like, Raffle getting, basically, uh, the last couple games it's been Weiss just because, and apparently, you know, they've moved to replace him now, but Raffle is getting the least amount of ice time of any of the forwards. That's nuts. It seems like, a little nutty. They, they refuse to play him on special teams, which is part of it, and now he's on the fourth line, but you'd think you can find a place for a guy who's been useful his whole career. Like, do, do we, like I tried to ask the question, do we undervalue McDonald? Are we unfair to him? Do some of us just overvalue Raffle? Like, what am I missing that I believe he should be getting more ice time? I don't know. I, I, I truthfully don't know because, as I, I talked about, like, the little things earlier, Raffle's a guy who, you know, I definitely see him doing the little things right, and then, lo and behold, that actually shows up in results. So seems like the little things are actually helping in that case. I don't know. For the longest time, I thought it was just that he wasn't with the team at the end of the year when the team finally started scoring and that that was what was driving his marginalization in the lineup. But, like, the, now he's on a fourth line that's been really good, and it's not – like they've shown any interest in moving him up. But it, honestly, it could just be as simple as they don't want to move him up because they're so happy with the fourth line. They don't want to mess with the chemistry there. Like it really could just be that simple. And Lear and Lawton have done a good job on the penalty kill so far. So it's not like you're going to slot him in over, over one of those guys. But I just there, – there's no way they're just going to forget that Michael Roffel functioned fairly well as a top – first line forward for them for a while and then functioned as a good middle six forward for them most of last year at least from a play driving standpoint like they've liked him for too long to just kind of ignore the fact that they've in the past thought he was pretty darn good that's that's my theory I could be wrong but once again I'm stressing that we are not ranking our lines anymore we're just numbering them Michael Roffle is on line number four it doesn't mean it's the fourth best line in my opinion true but there's minutes like like i agree that line numbers don't matter that much but like the fourth line is still getting the fourth on average the fourth least minutes out of the line so it matters to that yeah yeah it's my 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 issue like that line is playing well keep them together cool but i just my issue is how like it doesn't seem like they're utilizing a good player enough. Maybe they think less is more, and it's like, okay, he's useful. If we can get 12 awesome minutes out of him, that's all we're looking for. But I I, I don't know. But I, I don't want to be too negative, again, because, like I said, this team is 5-3-0, and and I honestly believe they've looked better than that record. Uh, they're scoring three and a half goals a game, which is eighth most in the league. Uh, they're up to second most in the league, like at some point last week before being shut out by Nashville and then scoring two versus Edmonton. They're allowing two and a quarter goals a game, which is the second fewest in the league behind the Kings, who have a guy named Quick and who have guys named Quick and Dowdy. So that seems pretty good. Uh, is it time to give the goalies a little love, though? Like I, I, I like what I'm seeing. Uh, they've allowed they've allowed two or fewer goals in six of the eight games. Uh, I, I just like what I'm seeing out of the goaltenders, too. They've been pretty solid. You know, despite Brian Elliott's, you know, pension for flopping around in the net. I mean, even he's been pretty good. Um, we're getting competent goaltending, which we talked about a lot, is all we needed last year to sneak into a playoff spot. It's just some competence in net. So hopefully they can just keep playing not terribly, and we'll be all set. <laughs> I, I think we set one, super one... high bars here. Yeah. No, I think one thing that, that sort of needs to be accounted for, because, like, 
I've, I've looked at the numbers. Like, the Flyers are – there's definitely good things. They're not looking like, by the advanced metrics, not looking like a dominant team, but they're not looking bad. The one thing, though, that really gives me pause, you know, aside from the fact that obviously we're only eight games in, it's very early into the year, but, like, the Flyers have had a very tough early season schedule. Like, they started out on a four-game road trip against four teams, four Western Conference teams that either made the playoffs or barely missed it and have a history of being a legitimate contender, speaking of the Kings. Like, they've played against almost entirely good teams, maybe with the exception of Florida, and even they drive play pretty well. Like, they really haven't had a cupcake game yet. And that's why, like, I'm almost... As, as interested as I am to see how they're going to play against against Toronto on Saturday, because in a sense that it'll be something of like a measuring stick game, because it seems like Toronto, you know, due to the fact that Washington is off to something of a slow start, Pittsburgh's been off and on, like Toronto seemingly establishing themselves as the best team in the early going in the Eastern Conference. It'll be interesting to see how the Flyers match up with them on Saturday, especially on the road. But I'm just as interested to see how they look against, uh, you know, against Ottawa, who's, you know, not that good of a team. And I want to see if they can go in there and just take them apart. And if they can go in there and take them apart, I'll feel even better about this team because it shows that, okay, well, now they're going against lesser teams and they're doing what they should do to a lesser team if they're actually a good team. I was actually thinking about that, Charlie. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this Ottawa game because, like you said, they're a pretty demonstrably bad team pretty much everywhere that isn't. Um, what's his face? Carlson. <laughs> Eric Carlson. Eric- I mean, yeah, that guy. Why would I remember his name? <laughs> Eric Carlson. So it is, I am kind of super psyched. I do want to see them go in there and just roll them. And if they do, I'm, because right now, I mean, like Bill said, they're, they, the record's good. They're playing well. They've been in every game that they've played, but I'm still not allowing myself to be super happy and excited about this team yet. Um, but if they absolutely roll Ottawa, I might start feeling good feelings. You know, there's no one I. You know, there's no one in the league I hate more than Ottawa. So I am all for it. I kind of was really hoping to see uh, Sam Moran up for the Ottawa game just so he could beat some people up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would. I would love a blowout there. I would love to see this team dismantle Ottawa the way they did. Uh, the way they did Washington and Florida. Uh, but I want to know because you know, like Charlie said, the numbers aren't that of a dominant team. Uh, what do you think uh, they've been masking early on that could become an issue? So I guess I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, they haven't done an amazing job territorially. Like, it's it's kind of weird because, like, luckily, I, I know I reference him all the time, but, like, Corey Schneider's stuff that he does is, is amazing. Fo- follow him if you don't. Shut down line uh, on Twitter. But if you break down the numbers of the Flyers, like, and what they've done in the neutral zone, they've won the neutral zone. Like, in almost every single game, they generally generate more offensive zone entries than the other team does, and they're generally getting uh, their entries with control of the puck more than the other team. Despite that, though, they're still losing the raw shot differential battle at even strength, which is weird to me. And I want to dive in deeper. I want to see if it's because they're not getting enough shots in the when they're in the offensive zone or whether it's because they're giving up too many shots when they're in the defensive zone but in the middle of the ice they've been really good yet they're still losing territorially and that could be an issue maybe against like especially against a team like toronto who has so much firepower that like if they're struggling in either my guess is it might be the defensive zone they might be struggling to prevent shots in the defensive zone and if they're bleeding shots in the defensive zone maybe that could be exploited by a team like Toronto. So I'm a little worried about the territorial battle, but at the same time, like their score adjusted course, he's 48.884%, which isn't that good. Their expected goals percentage, though, they've generated 51.73% of the expected goals of five on five, which is good, which means that despite the fact they're losing the raw territorial battle, they're winning the shot quality battle, which is like the reverse of what they did last year, which has been crazy to see. Hmm. Yeah, I have a, I have a bit of a theory about the uh, about the the expected goals and Corsi numbers for this team. Uh, first of all, I just think they're not playing great in first periods. That's true. Uh, they played well on Saturday. Uh, they played well on Saturday, and they but they've overall had trouble getting the momentum go- going. They only have six first period goals, which is uh, bottom ten in the league. But then when you see uh, second period goals, twelve. 
uh, nine goals in third periods. They're scoring well uh, later in games. And I look at what their offense is, and it's almost the opposite of what it was last year, where they were just like one-and-done chances, and then it would go the other way and they get stuck. The Flyers have a nice combination right now, I think, of, uh, of speed that they're using. Uh, to gain the zone, and then a cycle game down low, their functional strength. They're not a huge team, but I think they're very functionally strong with guys like uh, with guys like Jordan Wheel in the lineup. And I think they use this kind of like a running game in football, where you don't always see the gains on first down or in the first quarter, but as the game wears on, by the time it's in halfway through the second, third period, all of a sudden, the Flyers are starting to take over games. There was a stretch where they were crushing teams uh, in third periods, even just by raw shot totals. And I think it's kind of just the way they play. They, uh, When you keep the puck cycling down low, maybe you don't get a ton of shots, but you wear down the defense, and then eventually uh, they have coverage lapses or they, uh, or they take penalties, and that results in good scoring chances. So while maybe they aren't getting a ton of shots compared to the other team, they're getting quality chances out of how they're playing on offense. Just my theory. Yeah. It certainly seems that way. Yeah, no question. I, it's funny. One thing that Claude Drew actually said after a game about that, because I, I, I might have asked him that, somebody else might have asked him that, but he, the, the third period thing got brought up. And he said something interesting, which was basically that he thinks a lot of it is just because this team is in really, really good physical condition. He thinks that they're, you know, to a man, they're all in really good shape, and they just don't get tired as the game goes on. And somebody asked him, this wasn't me, this was somebody else, but somebody asked him, you know, was that, like, a main focus of Hackstall and Hextall in, like, the exit interviews at the end of the year? And Drew basically said, not really. We were just sick of, like, not playing well. So he thinks that, like, they all just went and, like, kicked ass in on the offseason and worked their tails off to get themselves in super good shape. And, like, they all showed up early to camp, like, to a man. They were all there, like, a week early. And maybe this is just the benefit of having a team that is in really, really good physical condition. Yeah, I actually um, pointed that out on Saturday in my post-game thing that um, we're really seeing a difference in the third period with this team. Um particularly from last season. It's like a, a complete 180. Um, they're just not giving up on games the way they used to. I, and I think the conditioning, when you when you hear about, uh, you know, the kind of work that Ivan Provorov does in the offseason and it's like mountain man training or some shit, <laughs> and then you hear Claude Giroux say, yeah, I'm not hurt this year. I didn't need to have surgery. So I was actually able to, like, work out in the off season and that seems to be paying off early and i want to i want to close out by talking about Giroux. uh five goals in eight games to go along with his five assists we always expect the assist numbers out of him uh but this is a guy whose goal totals have been down 14 goals in 2016-17 uh was his low lowest total was his lowest full season total in his career uh, he had he had nine goals in the 42 games the year he got called up, and he had 13 in the lockout year in 2013. Uh, obviously, it's early, but he's on a 50 goal pace, and Giroux has been in a has been a notoriously slow starter in recent years. Uh, is it the position switch? Is it simply just health? Is it having reinforcements, both like with defenders who can move the puck, uh, plus balance throughout the lineup? Is it Knobloch? Is it Sean Couturier? Why does Claude Giroux look three years younger? Yes, to all of these things. <laughs> he's back, baby. I think, honestly, I think it's that he's healthy. He had his first offseason in a long time when he wasn't recovering from anything major. And so he got to train the way that he wants to. He got to rest a bit. Um, and I think that makes a huge difference. Also, and as much as it pains me to say something good about Dave Hextall, I think the switch to wing is kind of, you know, reignited something in him it might it might even be as simple as the fact that he played some wing when he was a kid he's remembering how fun it was and he's having more fun out there than he had before it might be that simple and I think it's showing and we all kind of joked a little bit that um Claude Giroux was going to lead this team in a number of box stats this season and I I really think he's going to he's playing like a man on fire and it's super fun to watch it's this has been like maybe the best part of the season for Flyers fans is just watching Claude Giroux, you know, 
I wouldn't even say shut up the haters because I think even like most of the haters of Claude Giroux in Philadelphia, like they they were frustrated, but like they were frustrated because they desperately wanted him to be go back to the player he used to be. Like it was it was frustration from a position of like past love and like you know four or five years ago, like everybody thought Claude Giroux was the best, and now it's like okay, why can't he be that guy again? And it's been really cool to see him at least you know to a degree replicate what he's done in the past. But like with all of these types of things it's it's a multifaceted explanation like there's a lot of reasons for this hot start you know some of it as you know as kind of it doesn't feel like a like a satisfying answer but like some of it is just luck like he had really bad luck last year he's had much better luck this year with regards to the bounces of the puck and with regards mm-hmm. to shots going in and with regards to other people putting the puck in the net after he sets them up with a perfect pass like in a small sample size it plays a role but it's not just that like I do believe that him being on a line with Sean Couturier has been huge because, you know, he's never really gotten to play with Couturier, which meant that he always sort of had to carry the load on his line. And now Couturier is having is he's he's able to let Couturier do some of the tougher things, particularly in the defensive zone, whereas Drew can sort of conserve his energy on shifts and kind of hang out up top and, you know, do his do his job and coverage. But he's not having to get into the puck battles down low as much, which allows him that, like, when they break the other way, he has a little bit more energy in the tank and he can blast down the ice at a quicker pace. So I think that's important. And then, Bill, you mentioned Knobloch. Like, the power play looks really good in the early season, both units and part of that i mean even the goalie scored on uh on saturday against edmonton like coming from behind yeah, the net. coming from behind that they never used to do yeah. that and this is clearly a knob lock tweak and it's just these little things like you know yeah one of the things may not be causing but add up three or four add in the couture effect add in the fact that voracek is playing better this year add in the knob lock impact add in the 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 injury and maybe he's more he's in better shape and then add in pure luck like all those things add up to what we're seeing, which is a Claude Giroux that looks rejuvenated and it's showing on the score sheet. Yeah, and yep. I, I will, I will fully, uh, I will fully like admit I was one of the trade Giroux people, not out of a position of I hate him, he sucks, but just like man, that contract and what his decline looks like it's going to be, this could be a real issue for a team looking to contend in a couple of years. If you can get some assets for him, I think it's something you need to explore. And I'm just so happy to see see him turn it around, at least early, because, yeah, like when Peter Laviolette called him the best player in the world, I mean, it was, you know, obviously hyperbole, but we were all like, hell yeah, screw Crosby, it's our guy. Yeah. And that was, like, that was <laughs> awesome. And I just want him to be that guy again. And if, if it's this position switch or whatever that's just, like, lit a fire under his ass and made him the player he used to be, I'm all for it. Especially, like, he's going to be here. That's There's no moving. He's got the no-movement clause and an $8 million contract. It's it, He's got to produce. They need him, and he is, and it's awesome. Very. Yeah, it, it's funny that you brought up the, uh, the Trey Giroux thing because, like, I'm certainly not – advocating for this but this actually was like a conversation that i had with a couple people at at rochester this weekend um over like multiple cold ones but basically (laughs) um basically the the point that kind of sort of came up was you know we've talked about on multiple occasions like well there's no way they could possibly trade Giroux. you know they'd be selling low they wouldn't get anything for him considering his contract like you know, now we're all excited, like Claude Giroux's back. I mean, truthfully, if you were going to trade Giroux, this is when you do it. Like, when everybody's back to being excited, like, hey, he's back, he's he's his old self. Like, if you were going to trade him, this is probably when you consider it because the narrative is swung in the direction of, like, see, it was just the injury, he's back, and he's still awesome. So I'm not saying they should, but, like, it, it is something kind of to think about. No, Charlie, I don't like it. <laughs> I love it, Charlie. Always extract value. Always be closing. All right. (laughs) That is all the time we have for you on Broad Street Hockey Radio this week. Uh, It was a fun show. We certainly did our best without Steph Driver. Uh, We will have her back next week. Uh, It's always better when we have the full crew, but we may do. Uh, And, guys, I just want to tell you real quick about Draft. I want to tell you about going to Draft.com, setting up an account for all 
of your daily fantasy sports needs. Uh, it's real simple. Just go to draft.com, sign up with the promo code BSH Radio. You will be supporting us, and you will, uh, you know, be doing some fun fantasy stuff. So go there, use uh, use it for all your daily fantasy. There's NHL, uh, NFL. They have the baseball playoffs going on right now. I have golf. I have no idea how fantasy golf works, but I saw it on that website, so it's a thing. <laughs> Check it out. Uh, my name is Bill Matz. Have a great week, Philadelphia. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.